February of 1801, Thomas Jefferson became the third president of the United States and in so doing demonstrated really one of the remarkable hallmarks of the democracy that we are a part of, which is a peaceful transfer of power from one political party to another. It really is wild when you think about that peaceful transfer of power, especially after experiencing maybe a contentious election and campaign cycle. But I think one thing that that election at the turn of the 19th century reminds us of is the fact that the unpleasant and often dirty political game that is used to win an election isn't at all new. The election of 1800 was far from decent or honorable. I, today, new methods are used in that political game, but I think dirty politics has probably always existed. And yet, in 1801, power transferred peacefully, as it continues to do so far, though not without messiness, but things moved on. Even though there were people in the country at that time who were sure that that election was going to be the end of this new nation. A peaceful transfer of power. It's really quite remarkable. Now, the, the connection to where we're heading over the next couple of months is that we are going to be spending time, at least for a few weeks, reading some stories about David's life. And today's text from 2 Samuel chapter 7 describes the beginning of his rule as the king of Israel, but his transition into power wasn't nearly as peaceful as you maybe would expect. The first six chapters of 2 Samuel detail some of the events surrounding that transfer of power from King Saul to King David following Saul's death. And those six chapters are filled with some crazy things. Six chapters filled with uncertainty as everybody, those who are still loyal to Saul as well as those who are on Team David, everybody is jockeying for power or at least for a seat at the table of the powerful. In those six chapters, we read of grief, violence, war, murder, revenge. We even see David purchasing one of Saul's daughters as a wife, even though she was already married to another man, which obviously there are a number of problems with that scenario. There are some crazy things we read about. There are crazy and evil things that David is involved in surrounding this transition to power. We're going to see one of those in more detail over the next couple of weeks. But through all of that intrigue, David in chapter 7 has finally been established as the leader of Israel. That messy transition into power is more or less complete. The ark has been returned. David is setting up shops, so to speak, in this new capital city with legitimate authority. And chapter 7 marks the beginning of of his rule. Now, this may seem like a really random spot to spend some time reading a story, but Old Testament scholar Walter Brueggemann suggests that 2 Samuel chapter 7 is perhaps the most important chapter in the Old Testament, which seems like an odd statement, but he says that's the fact, especially for those coming from a Christian perspective. So, this is quite a claim. 
Today, as we read this story, let's consider what may lead him to that conclusion. So we're going to begin reading 2 Samuel chapter 7. We'll start at the beginning, verse 1, where we read this. Now, when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. So again, the inauguration, so to speak, is over. The the tension, the turmoil, turmoil and anxiety of the preceding years had subsided, and David now is in his palatial estate in which he could sit back, relax, and enjoy his newfound and maybe well-deserved power. So the shepherd boy, who at the beginning of the story lacked any degree of respectability, has now been elevated to the highest position of authority in the land. And in chapter 7, we find David beginning to mull over some of his goals. So he's settled into his position. Now he's starting to think about what his reign is going to look like. Mulling over things that he would like to accomplish during his tenure. Thinking about some of the large and complicated tasks of managing a kingdom that was itself in a state of flux. Trying to answer questions like, how was life for Israel going to look under this new regime? How are the people going to continue to be faithful to Yahweh in this new season now that they were no longer really on the move, but they had settled into a place of permanence and security? No longer did the people need to just manage individual crises as they would arise, but they could now begin to proactively prepare for the future. And that's what we find David starting to do in chapter 7. And as David thinks about the future, as he thinks about what that was going to mean for the kingdom, first on his, or at least near the top of his priority list, is his hope to build their God a temple. Now he frames this goal of building a temple in a very noble way, makes it seem as though he is entirely interested in honoring their God. He, He admits, I feel bad. Look, I've been living in luxury in this incredible house of cedar. Meanwhile, the Lord is dwelling in a temporary and quite destructible tent. Now, to be fair, this desire was probably a little bit noble and a little bit selfish. His motives probably weren't entirely self-centered, but as Brueggemann notes elsewhere, the urge of David to build their God a temple was probably coming from a place of genuine piety and devotion, but also maybe a self-centered attempt at legitimacy in the infancy of his reign. Because a temple, which in some ways stands in stark contrast with where the people had come from, where the ark was the primary symbol of Jewish spirituality, the, the temple did something that the ark couldn't do, or the tabernacle for that matter. The the temple provided that legitimacy that they sought. It provided that coveted sense of permanence. It, It gave the people a guarantee that God was not going to leave them. With the ark, it was a little more 
indefinite. It was given to change. I mean, the ark was mobile, and the Lord could lead them wherever he chose with the ark. The Lord's freedom is on full display. Through the temple, on the other hand, people could sort of nail down God a little bit. Now, as I reflect upon the beginning of this story, I think this is demonstrating a human tendency that is pretty common in our dealings with God because it really can feel a little bit scary to follow a God who is on the move. To follow a God who is leading you, yes, but who may lead you into the wilderness and a God who at other times seems to be absent. Well, the hope for the temple was that it would dispel some of those fears. This is God's house. This is where he is going to be, and we have some control in those matters. So we're going to see in coming weeks, control is something that David often wants to cling to. So this is David's plan. Let's legitimize my reign and build a temple where God can dwell. He takes this plan to the prophet Nathan, who's sort of functioning as this buffer between David and God and giving David approval for some of his plans. And initially, Nathan doesn't sense any incongruence between David's plan to build a temple and what God would want. But we quickly see that Nathan's hasty approval of those plans change almost immediately in verse 4. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. So God speaks to Nathan that night and says, wait, wait a second. Let's pull the reins a little bit. Who told you to authorize this grand building project? Go and let David know that things have changed since this afternoon, and he's not going to build me a temple after all. And then we find a speech from God to Nathan intended for David in verse 5. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? The implied answer, of course, is no. So, so the Lord here in this speech for David seems to be getting out a little bit of that tension between the permanence that a temple would offer and the transience of the tabernacle or the ark. In the ark, the freedom of God is demonstrated so God seems to be saying in a way to David and Nathan, open your eyes. Are, are you lost? You're missing entirely what I am about and what I'm trying to do through you. About seven years ago, I spent a year working at Starbucks. I, I was actually working there when I started my role pastoring here at Solid Rock. And, and the store that I worked at, as many of them do, had a drive through because I guess if you can't have great coffee, at least you can get it quickly. Um, and the, the, we, we can edit that out, right? The, the store that I was at was right next door to a McDonald's. And this is probably an exaggeration, 
But it, to me, it seemed like every other week or so, somebody would come through the drive-thru and begin their order in this way. Yeah, I'll take a Big Mac and fries and a Diet Coke. Through my little headset, I would patiently respond. I say patiently, facetiously. I would respond, sir or ma'am, open your eyes. I think you're lost. You, you are missing the key ingredient to this order, and that is the establishment that can offer you that food. And that's sort of what I sense God saying to Nathan and David. David, open your eyes. Are you lost? Do you not realize what you are a part of or who I am? A house? That's your grand plan? That's what you want to do with your authority? It's to build me a permanent dwelling place? David, I think you're missing some critical aspects of who I am and how I go about my business. I haven't had a house this whole time. Since I brought the people up out of Egypt, we've been on the go. We've been a people who have never really been too settled. So let me remind you of where we've come from, what I brought you from, and what I'm preparing you for. And here's a hint. It has nothing to do with a temple or a house that you could build me. We pick it up in verse 8. Now, therefore... Thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth, and I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. So we see several notable covenants made to this point in the story. We find a covenant that God makes with Noah makes one with Abraham, he makes one with Moses, and now God makes a covenant with his servant, David. And the foundation for everything that was going to follow is God's sustaining and providing hand. God, God is the one who took David from the pasture. God is the one who has given him any success he has experienced to this point, and any future glory would be God's as well. Everything in the story rests on God's initiative in upholding David, not David's ability to do something to legitimize his rule or solidify that rule with an element of permanence through something like a temple. So the plan changes a little bit for David, as is often the case when we are serving a God of freedom. When we are serving a God who can't be boxed in by our plans or boxed in by our insistence on doing things our way. I think people of faith must get used to change. Nathan has to come to terms with this fact and then he has to try to convince David to come to terms with that fact. And it's something that I think we need to recognize in our lives as well. And that is change is inevitable. As people who are following a God who is entirely free, 
change is going to be a part of that journey. I, I like what Eugene Peterson said of this episode. Now I'll read it. He said, but there are times when our grand human plans to do something for God are seen after a night of prayer to be a huge human distraction from what God is doing for us. That's what Nathan realized that night. God showed Nathan that David's building plans for God would interfere with God's building plans for David. Have you ever found yourself in a position like that? I think following our God requires a great deal of humility. It requires a willingness to be open to the fact that we may not know what's best. And the plans that we have made in the present, although we think they are perfect, maybe they're not going to be the best for the future that God has for us. Or maybe we are occupying our thoughts and our time with things that are actually taking us further away from God's plans rather than occupying our thoughts and our time with things that are working in concert with God's plans. And I, I think that as people of faith who are following a God who is free, who is not constrained in the slightest by our plans, we must seek to develop a willingness to be open to what the Spirit might be speaking, maybe even in the ordinary matters of our lives. So I think maybe an appropriate question for us, uh, us to ask ourselves is, are, are there times in my life when maybe out of a desire for increased security or a sense of permanence or a desire for comfort, are there times when I manipulate situations in my life or convince myself that a mindset that I have or a behavior that I am engaged in is approved by God? Because I want these circumstances to continue. And so I will convince myself that anything that facilitates or promotes this set of circumstances is what God would want. And I think in some ways, that's what David here is doing. He wants legitimacy. He wants permanence. And what is going to lead to that? Well, a permanent structure, a temple. But, but we see God respond to that plan and say, I don't want a house. That's never what I've wanted. This is what I want instead. We pick it up in the middle of verse 11. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. The Lord will make you a house. So there's some wordplay going on here with the word that is translated into our text as house. That word can refer to a temple, but it can also refer to a dynasty. And God seems to essentially be saying, David, you can't build me a house, but I am going to build you a house. Verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men, but my steadfast love will not depart from him, 
as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever in accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision Nathan spoke to David. So God says, David, you, you want to build me a house that is permanent? First of all, that's impossible because eventually even that structure made of stone and cedar, that's going to be destroyed. Which if we read history, we find that that's the case with the temple that is eventually built. Anything you could build would be destroyed eventually anyway, but I am going to build you a house, David, that cannot be destroyed. I am going to build a house for you that will last long after you have died. Your offspring, your dynasty, the kingdom that I build for you will last forever. Now, initially, it seems that this is a reference specifically to David's son, Solomon. But as, I, as it continues to develop, I think it becomes clear that there are messianic implications that are unavoidable. Having the benefit of knowing the rest of the story, we might see things that maybe David even missed in this promise. The line, the house of David, will last forever. But the important distinction between the permanent house of David and the permanence that David hoped to bring through his efforts to build a house for God, uh, the distinction between those is, of course, the source. Who is providing that lasting effect? Well, with a temple, that's David who is hoping to provide the lasting effect, but the covenant made with David could be counted on because God himself would carry it out and see it through. I think another important observation that Brueggemann makes at this point is that there's something special that we find in this covenant that is made with David that we don't find in the other covenants. The other covenants, maybe especially the one that is made with Moses, really put a lot of onus on Moses and on the people. I will be your God and I will uphold you if you do this. If you follow the law and remain faithful to me, then I will remain faithful to you. With David, though, the promise that is made is unconditional. And so we find in this very early implicit messianic promise the hope of the unconditional love and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ whom this foretells. We find here in David's life the message that God is faithful even when we are not. God isn't faithful because we deserve it or have done our part in keeping the deal. No, God is faithful in his unconditional love and grace because that's who God is and that's who he has always been. Now, that isn't to suggest that there won't be very real natural consequences for our sin and for our lack of faithfulness. This does not at all diminish the importance of a Christian ethic or living our lives guided by kingdom principles and the life of Jesus. But we are reminded, I think, in this story that right living isn't our source of hope. Our ability to look like Jesus, that's not our hope. 
Our hope is in God's faithfulness to rescue us even in our unfaithfulness. That's the gospel, right? That this incredible promise that a never-ending house or dynasty or reign would be David's was an unconditional covenant. And we find as we read the rest of the story that that's a really good thing because David fell short repeatedly. We're going to see that clearly over the next couple of weeks, that if this promise rested on David's ability to lead and to live faithfully, that it would have been broken before it ever started. That the kings that followed David fell short repeatedly. At times, the kingdom was a very, very broken place. The leaders didn't always stay close to the heart of God, and yet all was not lost because the promise remained that the house of David would last forever. And finally in Jesus, we see what that hope could mean. It at least in part means that in Jesus, all of the things that the various kings of Israel were called to do, but absolutely incapable of accomplishing, Jesus himself makes that a reality. Here's a simple example to illustrate that point. Israel had been instructed in things like the practice of the year of Jubilee, where debts would be forgiven, where where property would be returned to its original owner, and, and so on. But the leaders of Israel found it very difficult, if not altogether impossible, to actually begin to implement some of those practices. I think in part because that type of leading isn't popular. Asking the people to engage in some of those practices, that's not going to help a king in their pursuit of self-preservation. Those types of practices are actually going to disrupt the foundation of the kingdom that they are trying to build. So they found it very difficult to follow through with some of those plans. And I think like David and like the kings that followed him, I think maybe you and I are also too often concerned with what will give us security or what will bring us comfort, which makes following Jesus, it it makes following a God who is absolutely free and on the move, it makes that very difficult. So yes, David was a great king. In some ways, I guess, he was a lousy king in a lot of other ways. We're going to see that highlighted in coming weeks. But in some ways, he was a great king, but we are constantly reminded as we read about David's life and about his reign that Jesus is a far greater king. And that is depicted clearly in something that David could not do, but Jesus does time and time again. It is depicted clearly in Christ's willingness to let go of his power, to let go of his desire for security or his desire to maintain the status In Jesus, we find a king who is completely different than King David, who is completely different than any king who has ruled since David or any modern-day king or president or world leader. I think one place that this is, it's demonstrated throughout the life of Christ, but one place that it's demonstrated is on the Mount of Olives. Just before the crucifixion of Christ, in this incident, we see Jesus betrayed 
by a kiss from Judas. And we're going to pick it up in verse 49. And when those who were around, so right after the kiss from Judas, when those who were around him saw what would follow, they understand what's going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? Shall we strike with the sword? Shall we come in and secure your permanence? Offer security? Maybe you think, David, should we build you a house? Shall we secure your permanence? I think all of these questions are coming from a similar fear. Verse 50, And one of them struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Jesus said, No more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Jesus does what King David or any king after King David was incapable of doing, relinquishing the ideal of security for the benefit of another. In this story, even the benefit of the one who intended to harm Jesus. This is the type of king. This is the type of kingdom that lasts forever. As we read over the next couple of weeks some of the things that David is engaged in, we see clearly that The type of kingdom David was trying to build is not what God was hoping for, but it is leading to the perfect kingdom of Christ, which we see revealed. Amen. As we reflect upon this text this morning and as we approach the table, I think there are a few responses that are appropriate, at least a few. There are many more, but... I want to list three for us to be thinking about over the next few moments as we celebrate the life that we have in Christ, as we celebrate the forgiveness, the unconditional love and grace that we find in Christ. The first one, I think, is we are called to repent of times when we attempt to box God in, when we attempt to control him either for our benefit or out of a fear or out of self-interest, we say, God, forgive us. We are susceptible to that desire, too, to control our situations and think that controlling God is a way to control our situations. So we repent. We say, God, forgive us. Number two, we humble ourselves, and we submit to the king who continues to lead us even to today, but we also recognize the fact that he may be leading us into the wilderness for a season, and we accept that. And we continue to follow. And number three, we rejoice in Jesus. We rejoice in Jesus this morning, who is the perfect king. As we read stories about David and all of the crazy and often evil things he was involved in, we rejoice in Jesus, who is the perfect king who our world has always longed for. We rejoice in the unconditional love and grace extended to us, and we're going to celebrate that this morning through these elements. So would you stand? Say a prayer as we come to the table, meeting with Jesus, trusting that he is nourishing our bodies, our minds, our spirits through this meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you for our scriptures that are always pointing ahead to you. 
We thank you as we reflect upon stories of David. While we are thankful for those stories and we think they're important in the life of faith, we understand that that is not the picture-perfect vision of what you intended. And so as we read these stories, we are always looking ahead to you, trusting that you are our king, that you are continuing to lead us into the way of peace. We rest in your unconditional love and grace. Jesus, we are so grateful for the life that we find in you. Help us to continue to turn from our sin, to turn from our desire to control, that we might simply trust you. Amen. Would you join us at the table this morning as we celebrate the life of Christ?